I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. I'm delighted today to introduce Sadal Neely, who is a Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, focused on the intersection of work, technology, and organization. And I think we're all living that right now, including as we do this podcast by working and communicating remotely. So Sadal has just actually written a book released earlier this year called The Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So welcome, Sadal. Thank you so much for having me. So we're in the midst of this remote work revolution, seemingly. And I guess we're all wondering, are we about to see a big U-turn and a reversion to previous norms and behaviors? Or has anything changed permanently? Or can't we know at this particular point in time? What would be your advice on that? All of the evidence that has been mounting over the last few weeks, few months, is that we are not taking a U-turn. We're likely going to be looking forward in devising work arrangements that includes some remote work in it because employees are asking for it. The data on this is staggering. They're staggering to the tune of 85 to 87% of people surveyed across surveys, frankly, including Harvard Business School Online, say that they want some kind of remote work in their professional arrangement. Can we really know the future at this point in the sense that I may say I want to work from home, but my clients might disagree and their opinions might be subject to the opinions and the behaviors of others. So it might be this thing that Soros calls reflexive, you know, things depend upon the opinions of others. They're usually very unpredictable. But in your perspective, is is the future of remote work relatively clear at this point in time? I don't think it's relatively clear. I think it's getting designed as we speak. And organizations are very much in the process of penning their policies around what they want to see. And they're predominantly moving towards a hybrid work arrangement, which is uncertain. What is hybrid? For example, one size will not fit all. Every organization that's embedded in an industry, you're right, is going to have to create a workforce that has a bit of flexibility, but at the same time, where people are achieving their critical task, they're serving their stakeholders, customers, and their partners as well as they can. And at the same time, these are dynamic policies. I tell every company that I'm advising nowadays that any policy that you create today is subject to change, and it's important to articulate them in that way to your workforce. On the opposite side of the coin, it's not that we know nothing about remote work in the sense that in your book, one of the things you emphasize is that it's not entirely new. So be it from your research under COVID or prior experience of remote work, what do we know about the nature of remote work? How is it essentially different from physically co-located work? Remote and hybrid work is not only not new, it's decades old. And many organizations have a lot of experience in it. It's just the scale and scope of it that is making many people nervous, and rightly so. Remote work, what makes it unique is that people are operating with all of their risks related to being out of sight, out of mind, out of touch, and out of sync. So both individuals and leaders have to work hard to make sure that people are aligned, not only from a shared goals standpoint, but collaboration as well. It's very easy for the bubble over our heads 
to begin shaping, and we need to fight against that. The hybrid work arrangement is actually different than the remote one. Remote and in-person, the all or nothing people are comfortable with. The hybrid work arrangements is about people who will either be in the office or at home and imagine a typical meeting where you have some in the room, some not in the room. And that's kind of the embodiment of what the hybrid looks like. So for leaders and for individuals, this means that we're self-managing or we're leading people in a distributed environment. And that's what makes it different. So the hybrid model, I imagine there are all sorts of possibilities for us versus them. You know, the people with the loud voice in the room or the, the people with the greatest stake in things or the people with the greater knowledge of the context or whatever. How do we guard against some sort of polarization or us versus them phenomenon with a hybrid model? I think you're absolutely right. The risk with the hybrid model is that leaders will spend more time during not only conversations, common discourse, but also during the water cooler chats, connecting and getting into favoritism with individuals. And then, of course, you have the us versus them, us in the office versus you in a remote context. What gives me a lot of confidence that we won't fall prey to this natural but detrimental aspect of virtuality is the fact that individuals and leaders have developed more empathy than I've ever witnessed in 20 years of doing this work. In 20 years, I've never experienced people having more of a sense of what it feels like to lead or to be a member of a distributed work team. So people understand things that they never did before. It was such a blind spot. I can't even tell you how much of a blind spot this used to be. So knowing the challenges, managers and individuals, therefore, will have to change their behaviors. Listen, what I always say about where we are today and where we're potentially going is that we are all required to develop new skills on how to work together when we're not sharing the same time in the same space all of the time. And there are a ton of best practices to make these things work. Going back to your point, this is not new. Well, let's, let's go into some of those best practices. We, we shouldn't be too pessimistic because I think we've all been surprised by just how effective it's been and how rapidly it's been adopted. But nevertheless, as you point out, there are challenges and and best practices to get those challenges right. So one challenge you point out is the challenge of building and maintaining trust in a remote environment. And you talk about a trust palette and different types of trust under different circumstances. So could you tell us a little bit about the art of establishing trust, how to think about trust in a virtual interaction? Absolutely. Trust is one of two most examined elements of uh, virtual work, first one being productivity, you know, productivity and trust. And trust actually leads to more productivity. So trust can be looked at in two ways when it comes to virtual work. The first one is called swift cognitive trust. Swift cognitive trust is grounded in understanding two things about our collaborators or our leaders. The first one being, is this person reliable? That's very knowable. Check. Is this person competent? Very knowable. Check. If you have both of those things, what we find is that if we confer swift trust, we can work very effectively together, understanding that our information about others is incomplete, but sufficient. 
And the research on this is so robust that Swift Trust can allow people to work long term in a virtual environment where they're not co-located. But that's not enough. That's Swift Trust. Is there anything especially challenging or which requires new techniques for doing that virtually? Knowing and understanding others. So the question, the only question is, can we figure out if someone is dependable, reliable through our own observation or through references? The second thing is, do we know that someone is uh, competent or qualified to do this work? These are all 100% knowable. And either we're talking to others to yield that information or we know those things ourselves. Swift trust is so liberating. Once we understand that there's a mode of trust that works really well in this environment, then we say, okay, how can we gain this information? And that's it. That's why it's called Swift trust. If you think about a trusting curve, much like a learning curve, Swift trust happens almost at time zero once we discern those two things. So the things that we need to figure out is how do we discern them based on where we are and who we know in our organization? And practically, how do you do that? Do you you go off script a little bit at the beginning of a call and find out about a person more broadly before you dig into the business? Or or do you have, you know, rapport building interactions, which are not formal meetings? What would be technically the way of doing that virtually? Interestingly enough, you can even get this by making a call or talking to others who know people and say, hey, is this person reliable? Yes? No? Oh, no! Is he qualified? I mean, is he good at this? Yes? No? Okay, great. Let's move on. That's it. It's as easy as that. It doesn't even require that uh, I myself uh, have to go gain this information, but it is very knowable for me. So maybe in our launch or the way in which we start working together, we'll know this information very quickly because we'll articulate it. I don't know if we're going to talk about launches and relaunches. I think they're incredibly important in a remote environment. And for many people, by the way, we work with people and have history with people. So we know these things. These are not things hard to discern. And I think you were going to go on to describe some different types of trust too. Yes, It's called emotional trust. Emotional trust is grounded in the belief that you care about me, that my difficulties are important to you, that my interests are important to you. That's what emotional trust is built on. And you can earn emotional trust in two ways. One is through self-disclosure, believe it or not, sharing of ourselves. And I talk about mature self-disclosure, meaning we need to be thoughtful about the things that we disclose about ourselves, but we want to share our interests, our aspirations, our concerns, things that are important to reveal who we are. The second way to earn emotional trust is to not only have empathy, but reflect back the empathy that we have through our words and deeds so that others feel like, oh, we understand them. And when both of those things are present, we develop emotional trust. Managers must possess emotional trust. And that presumably also applies to the the regular physically co-located environment. But is there anything special about the manifestation or the exercise of that in a virtual context? There isn't. It's just that we have to build in occasions to reveal these things about ourselves. And there are a couple of ways of doing it. One is structuring unstructured time during regular meetings. So for example, if you have an hour meeting, spend six to seven minutes, about 10%, 
doing self-disclosure, not only for yourself as a manager leader, but also having others do the same thing. The other part of this is we need to actively work on informal interactions outside of our work goals throughout uh, our day in order to develop those as well. So the serendipitous, I just ran into you at the tea kettle or the cappuccino or water cooler just does not exist in a remote environment. So we need to create those opportunities. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about serendipity, actually, because it's, it's so important in, in a number of ways. Most innovations, if you really dig into the actual story, as opposed to the post-hoc rationalized story of where an invention came from, there's usually a serendipitous component. You were trying to do something else and this other thing happened. And I think it's an important part of apprenticeship, which is we just spend time observing and getting to know each other and so on. Have you seen anything interesting in terms of how high-performing teams and leaders are doing that in a virtual environment? Have you seen any innovations in harnessing serendipity? I can't speak to innovations in harnessing serendipity in the virtual environment. In fact, there's very little serendipitous moments that one has in a virtual environment for this type of innovation. What I have heard and looked at include building in asynchronous time to process information during work that allows for innovation to form, for example, in agile teams and agile methodologies, which is new in a remote environment because typically people sit together. I've heard many people who are talking about the various tools that you need in order to do work during your active participation of brainstorming or solving problems that has accelerated some of their innovative approaches. And the use of anonymous feedback, where you're not worried about people judging you or having to disappoint someone in providing negative feedback, you can easily do anonymous feedback and polling when you're virtual. And so people take advantages of those. And then you have, of course, mural boards and all sorts of different ways of innovating. But the idea that innovation can come through the serendipitous encounters in a virtual or remote environment is not the way it works. It happens in different ways. So if I'm using, let's say, Zoom in a very classical way, I have scheduled meetings and I've got an agenda and I stick to time and I'm using Zoom and everybody has a good camera. If that's my toolkit and my practice, what am I missing? What are the missing ingredients to access all of these other elements you're talking about, about, you know, water cooler chats and building trust and so on? Or can we do most of what we need within a traditional Zoom meeting? So there's the before meeting, there's at the beginning of the meeting, there's the after Zoom meeting. By the way, a lot of our video conferencing meetings are far too long and we're doing far too many of them. Tech exhaustion should not exist. It should absolutely not exist. And if you read chapter four in my book, you will never have Zoom fatigue again. But the way to think about these things is when you have a Zoom call, what do you do in the beginning of it? You can literally take three to five to six minutes to do some check-in, to do some personal connection. You can take advantage of the chat. You can walk in and say, hey, before we get started today, get on the chat and tell me how are you doing today? And people begin to chat in and it's personal and you might pick one or two to say, whoa, so-and-so, you're hungry. You are always hungry, you know, whatever it may be. So there's banter, there's the personal connection there. After a formal Zoom meeting, 
One of the things that you can also do is to say, hey, guys, I'm actually going to stay for a few minutes for overtime. So anyone want to check in about a point or anyone wants to talk about anything, I'll hand back. And so I'm going to do overtime today. So you see how you're building in the opportunity for these conversations. And then, of course, there's always so many other digital tools that you can use in order to have one-on-ones, personal encounters with others as well. So that's the way to think about this. I wonder whether there's anything special about the audio-only channel telephone calls, because I do these podcasts, and strangely, if people listen to one minute, they listen to 26 minutes. It seems to be associated with a greater degree of concentration necessarily than a video format. Does your research tell us anything about the uh, use of the old-fashioned telephone and its role in a productive set of interactions? Absolutely. And in fact, I often talk about not just my research, but I'm talking about 50 years worth of research. The research on digital tools and achieving social connection, achieving work goals has been around for nearly five decades. And what it says is that we need to match our work goals. Notice I didn't say just communication, but work goals with digital tools and the telephone or audio only sits on a continua of lean versus rich media. And Lean doesn't necessarily show body language, nonverbal communication. It doesn't necessarily show context. We don't know exactly where you are when you're doing your podcast, although both of us have green screens, which is amazing for me to see. And we don't have all of the variety of emotions that are getting conveyed necessarily. So the fact that audio only doesn't convey these things doesn't make it less than It just says that some communication or some work goals require just that, and it's quite enough. You don't always need to be on video, which is one of the reasons people are getting exhausted. They feel like every call has to be a video call. You mentioned briefly then launches, and you stress that a lot in the book, launches and relaunches. Some people might not be familiar with that idea. Tell us what that is and why that's important. Richard Hackman, who is the pioneering sociologist of everything and all things related to groups and teams, who actually is the teacher and the mentor of many of the well-known teams experts today, including Amy Edmondson, my friend and colleague with the psychological safety construct, he discovered 40 years he studied groups and teams of all types that launches and relaunches, which are nearly the same activities, predict the success of teams with up to 30% likelihood of succeeding. And what happens in launches? Imagine a two-hour meeting where together you are getting aligned around your shared goals. You're ensuring you understand each individual's constraints or potential contributions. You're articulating your shared preferred norms of working, including communication. How do we interact with one another? How do we make sure we're personally connected? How do we make sure you're professionally connected? How do we make sure we're communicating with clients? Shared norms. How do we do things? How do we make sure there's psychological safety in our group? And finally, leaders' opportunity to set and reset whatever vision and purpose you want to articulate. So imagine this launch conversation 
That happens typically at the beginning of the formation of the team, but you do it periodically in a virtual environment every six to eight weeks because it's very easy to go out of alignment in a virtual context. That is as simple as it is, but it can make or break your team. I found that a a fascinating idea for some reason. And I was trying to ask myself, like, why is this important? And is it because the continuousness of, you know, wall-to-wall Zoom meetings may lull us into thinking that launching and progressing projects is continuous, whereas in fact the launch is a discrete moment in time, a very important event. And is it because if you don't specify explicitly some of these parameters, like norms, for example, we may not pick them up in an environment that isn't reality. Is that why it's important or is it for some other reason? You know, it's interesting because these launches and relaunches are as important for non-virtual co-located teams as they are for actual virtual teams. And in fact, they fall into what Hackman says, the 60-30-10 rule. 60% of the success of our groups and teams is on team design. Who's in the team? You know, qualifications, backgrounds, cognitive diversity, everything that is important in our team design. 30% of our success factor, as I mentioned, relies on our ability to work well together. And this is where the launches and relaunches occur. Why? Teams are dynamic. Teams have emotions. There's something called team mood or team emotion. There are things called team culture. And the external world is constantly testing us, right? And individuals shift, change, and we need to make sure that we're looking forward in the same direction, motivated and excited to be with one another and that we're operating as one unit. Finally, that 10%, you'd be surprised, it blows me away every single time I say this, is the collaboration time that we spend together. So when we think about success factors, the collaboration time that we spend together only accounts for 10% of our success. It's everything before all the preparation that's important uh, moving forward. And team launches and relaunches are about how do we keep aligned no matter what. It is surprising, 10%. I think most people would guess it's 80% or something like that. You would think it was the vast majority, which is why it's so important when we put together our teams and we manage them, that we remember that everything that we do in preparation on how we put the team together and how do we ensure that we've set the conditions for them to be successful, i.e. launches, relaunches, count for 90% of our success. That is surprising. Let's zoom out slightly on the future of the work and and even more grandiosely, the future of the firm, because... Remote work is only one component of the future of work. My own discipline is strategy, and I think a lot about how will we use algorithmic cognition in designing competitive advantage. I think about the unit of analysis, you know, ecosystems rather than the individual firms. I think about the importance of uh, social value-added, social legitimacy of enterprises being more important moving forwards. As you look at the economic environment and the future of work more broadly defined, what other big topics do you see on the horizon? You know, before this book, Remote Work Revolution Succeeding from Anywhere, was fully written and released, I was working on another book with Paul Leonardi, who is my academic sibling, meaning we got our PhDs together at the same time, met close to 20 years ago, called The Digital Mindset. What we really need to know in the era of data, algorithms, and AI. I think if we are very smart and taking the 
opportunity today to design work in a way that's flexible and thoughtful for what's to come, which I believe is the digital revolution, where we're going to use more data, where we're going to have more digital transformation, where we're going to use more AI agents and bots. I don't always talk about this, but we worry so much about how is Sally going to collaborate with Will if they're not in the same space. I think what's coming soon is how is Sally and Will, how are they going to work with Darius, who's an AI agent? So I think that's where we're moving to. And the radical change that was wrought by COVID, I think if we take advantage of these changes and think deeply about the future of work and looking very forward and how do we use data, how do we expand our workforce, how do we seize all the opportunities from all of this productivity that we've gained, that's how we're going to be able to meet the moment that is here, the future. It's here. I'd love to have that conversation with you when you complete that book that you temporarily dropped. How does Sally collaborate with Hal? That would be fascinating. But unfortunately, we're coming up to our time. So let me just ask you one final question, Sadal, if I may. So we're in a time of flux, new practices. Some of it may revert. We may move to hybrid work. Sort of depends on our customers. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of novelty, new collaboration tools. To make sense of all of this, if there were three questions that leaders should be thinking about right now in designing their work protocols, what should those three questions be? How do we put together a policy that takes into account the critical tasks or the work that we need to do really well and inject flexibility into our workforce? How do we upskill our entire workforce in order to be amazing distributed collaborators? And how are we going to think about real estate in order to create and architect the types of environments when people do come in, can collaborate, can bond, can connect and return to their homes, motivated not only about their work, but can't wait to come back. Thanks so much, Sadal. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Sadal Neely, professor at the Harvard Business School on a new book, Remote Work Revolution, Succeeding from Anywhere, published by Harper Business in uh, March of this year. A topic that touches us all and a very interesting read. Thank you very much again.